It was good singing. We rejoice in the truths. I do appreciate the hearty singing of this congregation and the instruments that supplement and help and encourage us in our praise as well. It's good to sing with heart and fervor to the Lord and not to be uh, singing as if <laughs> we were just going through another part of the service. You've been in churches like that, and sometimes it's not really the, anything wrong with the hearts of the people. They've just never been taught to sing. And we are in a generation that's increasingly losing it, I think, as we watch on. And I don't want to be too critical of churches, but certainly as uh, praise bands lead and people, especially perhaps in even larger congregations, they just are brought to a point where they just watch. They watch people, other people doing the singing for them, and they never really learn to sing themselves. And they don't know what it is to enjoy a little bit of heaven on earth. We're all going to sing together, aren't we? We're all going to praise the Lord together, and our voices will blend in sweet harmony, and we'll not be just sitting and watching the experts take part, but we will sing that Thou hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood. And we will praise Him for what He has done. So thank the Lord for the praise of the, His people here in this place. It was a part of our instruction. You know, you, don't, you never know what you're, you have to deal with in various parts, but uh, when we went to uh, Calgary, part of my instruction that I didn't realize was going to be part of my instruction as teaching the congregation to sing because they were a small group and some of them really didn't know how to sing very well. And you don't reprimand, you just lead by example and you sing <laughs> as loudly as you can and try to encourage people to do the same. And eventually they get it. And as I've mentioned before, um, the children would join in, our children would sing and as they sang, it was almost an impetus to the rest of the congregation and I was just watching a little part of the service in uh, Calgary this past week, within the last week. Um, there was a young man there. Uh, I couldn't see him, but I could hear him as he was singing with the congregation. And I thought, praise the Lord. He, uh, you have a little disciple there <laughs> who has learned to sing loudly and help the congregation in their praise to the Lord. Others get courage and they join in. And certainly by the time we left, uh, not just because there was a, a few more people, but the people had had their lungs set free to sing their praise to the Lord. Well, I don't need to instruct you here. That would be like, <laughs> I was going to say an old colloquial term there. I'll just refrain from giving you an ostracism there. But uh, you are able to sing here, and we thank the Lord for that. Luke chapter 7 is where we are this evening. Luke chapter 7. As we continue in this God-given gospel record penned by the hand of a man by the name of Luke, a physician, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, the eternal infallible Word of God given to us by God, and how thankful we are for it. And tonight we're going to read from verse 11, 
Last Lord's Day, we dealt with the opening 10 verses. We come to verse 11, and we'll read through, we'll read through verse 17. Luke 7, verse 11 through 17. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying, The great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. Amen. And the Lord bless his word to us. Let's once again seek the Lord for his help as we come to this particular part of our worship where the Lord speaks and gives life and blessing from his word. Lord, we ask that thou wilt give us as a people, a deeper, fuller comprehension of the love of Jesus. It is vast. It is an endless ocean. And we are thankful that when we finally will enter into glory, we will still there yet ever be learning of the love of the Lord Jesus. Our education will continue. Our knowledge will ever increase as we learn more and more of what Thy Son has done for us. God bless us then tonight as we come to Thy Word. It is Thy Word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God endures forever. We pray that it would come with power and authority, according as there is need before us tonight. Give then the Holy Ghost to the preacher and to the listener. May Christ be exalted and praised. We ask in his name. Amen. During the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was not uncommon For the Savior to leave people in a condition of astonishment. In fact, as many as you know, Luke chapter 6 that we have finished not that long ago addresses similar themes and truths as we find in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And in the record given in the Sermon of the Mount or on the Mount, we are told that it had an impact upon people that they were quote, astonished at his doctrine. Astonished. The word astonished is a compound word that literally means to strike out. The sense is that the individual is being confronted with an experience 
that comes as a blow to the mind. It hits them. Today we might say they were blown away. And that's the impact that the Lord Jesus had regularly upon those that observed what he said, but also what he did. We can well assume that after the teaching of Luke 6, people were blown away by the Savior's doctrine. And as we progress through Luke chapter 7, we are going to learn that he was, and we will, or are learning and shall learn, that he was going to blow them away not only by his doctrine, but by his deeds. Astonish them over and over and over again. But I want to underline, it is not sufficient to be astonished by Jesus. It must progress from there. Your astonishment must lead to admiration, and your admiration must lead to affection. I make no apology for continually preaching on the aspect of affections, and whether I actually say the word affection or discuss or preach on affections, I am going after your affections. My language, my exhortation, the application of the word, again, I say I do not apologize for going after your affections. That I'm not just here to talk to you about Jesus and tell you lofty themes and ideas about God. I'm after your affections. I don't want you simply to know about Him. I don't want you to be simply astonished by Him or even to admire Him. I want you to love Him. The verses we have read are some of the sweetest, most touching evidences of the love of Christ. And I tell you, I doubt I'll be able to fully convey that tonight. And as I was up here, I was thinking, really, it would be good for you to meditate and study these verses on your own. Focus on Christ as these verses reflect on Him. And pray that the Spirit of God would do a work in your heart that you begin to comprehend, even as we've been singing and as I've just prayed, comprehend more of the profound love of Christ. The event we have read of occurred the day after the occasion we considered last Lord's Day, the healing of the centurion's servant, a man that was worthless in the eyes of the world, but valued Oddly, by his master, certainly would have been strange for those days, but we can assume was loved even more by the Lord Jesus Christ. That man was brought back from the brink of death. He was at death's door, but the next day we are told of a young man brought back not from the brink of death, but resurrected out of death, son of a widow. Since the Jews did not have much time between death and burial, it's not like what often will take place today, Usually, a body would be buried within 24, probably perhaps at the very outside, 48 hours. And therefore, it would not be, I think, wrong to assume that on the same day that the centurion's servant was healed, this young man died. And there's not much distance between the two places, Capernaum and Nain, or only a short distance from one another. If you take a step back, it would be very easy to start asking questions such as, why did God save the centurion's slave and let the widow's boy die? 
especially if you stop for a minute and you, you don't know what's going to happen. Why? If the answer for the glory of God does not satisfy you, no answer will. God does things for His glory. And we do not always understand. In fact, (laughs) I think more often than not, even when we think we understand why God is doing something, we have no idea. Our minds pry into things and in a vain way seek to comprehend the activity of the Almighty, but we have no idea. So as we look at these verses tonight that relate to the widow and her son being raised, and especially what the Lord Jesus is and what He shows in this portion, we're considering it under the title, No Match for Jesus. No Match for Jesus. And I want us to see, first of all, that no comforter can match Jesus. No comforter can match Jesus. And that goes without saying, but there are two things I want us to see from the text. Particularly, first, he sees and senses feelings of despair. Let's read again from verse 11. And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and much people. And when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. Try to put yourself in the scene. Do you imagine that this mother, this widow, has feelings of despair? I don't think it is a stretch of the imagination to see her as someone despairing. Maybe you've been there. Despair. You might even say desolation. She is left in an awful condition. And you can see by much people of the city being with her, there's a sense of compassion from the community. They might not be able to help her in every way, but they're showing some sense of connectedness with her and sympathy for her. The scene has... Jesus and his followers about to enter this city, as you read. So there's a huge crowd, we're told, in fact, in verse 11. Many of his disciples went with him, and much people. And no doubt, because of the healing of the centurion's servant, it didn't take long for that to, to spread. And at this time, the Lord Jesus is, is popular, and there's an ever-increasing crowd gathering around him, attending to the things that he says, and, and perhaps particularly seeking to see what he's going to do next. So there's a huge crowd of people, and in some ways, you wonder if there's a huge crowd that's following the Lord Jesus almost in a, in a disrespectful way or interfering into the procession that's leaving Nain. There would be music, sounds of wailing and sobbing, even if it was just from the hired mourners that were common in those days. And then there's the hustle and bustle of the people who have no idea what's going on in this city, but people... In crowds tend to talk and sometimes miss what's going on and in their, all their loudness and chatter and noise, they are drowning out something of particular significance that's happening right before them. So it wouldn't surprise me if 
As they come across this funeral procession, the crowd are being loud and people perhaps are frustrated and annoyed at what's going on. Do these people not understand? We're trying to mourn here. But eventually, no doubt, they see what's going on. They hear the music and there's a hush that comes over the vast crowd as they converge together. I don't know the details of all that had preceded this. Had the son been sick for a period of time? Had she prayed for divine intervention? We're not told. These are details we do not know. But again, try to see it there in your mind's eye. The family, the friends, the neighbors, the hired mourners, and especially the grieving widows standing there amidst the sorrow of what's going on and what has just happened. I imagine she's never felt more alone in her life. Ever a point in your life where you've never felt more alone? I doubt she's ever felt more alone than this day. Her husband had died at some point. We don't know when. It may have been many years ago and she had to raise the boy on her own. Or perhaps it was a short time ago and she cannot comprehend why. In quick succession, she has buried her husband and now is burying her boy. Her only son, we're told in verse 12. The only son of his mother. It is tragic. I say to you again, get into the passage. Feel what's happening. You do not know when in your life you're going to feel a certain way. You're going to feel like this widow. And when you study Scripture, try to feel what's going on because it is the emotions. When you take time to feel what's happening in a passage like this, that will stimulate your memory when you feel similarly. And your mind, rather than entering into despair, a hopeless despair, you will remember, you will remember this has happened before. And in God's holy word, there are events that I understand very similar to what I'm feeling and going through right now. And you go back there, and not only do you feel with the subject who is sorrowing, but you also benefit from the promises of the remedy given through Christ. We can't begin even to say what her conditions were materially, but certainly the odds were stacked against her. Perhaps her husband had done his best to leave her in a safe condition materially. Maybe he had just left enough so that by the time the boy came of age, then he would be able to look after her. But you can have plan A, and you can have plan B, 
God whisks them all away. What now? I say again, see the scene. Stand in the shoes of the widow. Some of you can understand the sorrow of losing a spouse, a parent, a child. Even on Wednesday evening, when our sister Carrie was testifying, she mentioned her father getting saved when she was four years of age and then dying three years later at the age of 41. Others of you know what that's like. So what hope have we? Understanding the frequent seasons of despair that his people have to go through, our loving God not only gave us his Son, the comfort is not confined to the physical presence of Jesus and his ministry on earth. Have you ever paused for a moment just to consider the promise that he gave to his people in John 14, verse 16? When he says to his disciples, I will pray the Father. I will pray the Father. What comfort we receive when a child of God, a friend in the faith, a brother or sister comes and says, I will pray. Or when we hear their prayers for us, fervent prayers on our behalf, beseeching God to come to our aid. We discern that they feel something of what we feel and we are encouraged and the burden is somehow lifted a little by the fact that they are entering into the burden with us and they are praying the Father. Well, Jesus prays the Father. He is praying similarly as a friend would pray for you. I'm praying for you because I know. I know you're going to enter dark days, days that will bring you into despondency. Despair, desolation, hopelessness will never be far as a possibility for your experience. But I will pray. I will pray the Father. And He shall give you, note it, another comforter. Another comforter. Now you read that in English, you think to yourself, well, another comforter. Can it replace the comforter in the person of Jesus Christ? The word really is a sense advocate. Can anyone replace the advocate Jesus Christ? Can anyone know now what those on earth were to experience with the physical presence of the Son of God on earth? But when you study the language, you realize that the language is nuanced sufficiently that we see the sense is another of the same kind. I am sending you, I will pray the Father that He will send another comforter, another of the same kind. You will not lose out on anything. In fact, you will gain. Because this comforter will abide with you forever. You will never be without this comforter. I will pray the Father, He will give you another comforter who will far exceed the blessing of my physical presence in your life. My beloved, that is to be laid hold upon by faith. We must understand the doctrine. We must get into our hearts the sense of the promise there. But we must also meditate upon this truth until we really understand it. 
that Jesus is not leaving us some second-rate experience, that he is assuring that what he is about to do here for this woman by his presence in her life and the change that that can bring, the Spirit of God is more than able to do the same thing. You can seek, seek consolation in people. And certainly friends are meant to stand with one another, pray for one another, bear one another's burdens. But there is no love like the love of Jesus. And he comes and communicates that by the Spirit. And as a denial of the promise that he has given, and even a denial of the testimony of the Lord's people, Read through the Psalms. Enter in again to the experience, the emotion, the, the feeling of what they're going through and see the resolve, see the solution as they find their refuge in God. I do not know why God appoints deeper sufferings for some of his people. I don't know. Neither do you. We often elevate the great theologian John Owen. Perhaps the greatest theologian of the English-speaking world ever. John Owen had 11 children. Ten of them he buried in infancy. One daughter reached an age when she could be married, but died not long after she was married. Eleven children, and he stood over every one of their graves. Do you understand why God would do such a thing? Sometimes God, in all the mystery of understanding what He is doing, we, we simply can't begin to pry, but he, we can see the end product at times. that the comforts of the gospel are forged in the furnace of affliction. You don't know the comforts of the gospel, perhaps. Not to the same degree until you've gone through the furnace. How comforting is Jesus? How comforting is He by His Spirit? Perhaps it cannot be fully fathomed until we find ourselves in a place that is more lonely and desolate than we have ever been. And Jesus is there. The answer to despair, child of God, is more of the Spirit. 
We often think, and we should rightly pray for the Spirit of God in our service. Clearly, the book of Acts gives evidence to the fact that the Spirit is given for power to serve. The Holy Ghost is bestowed in order to be witnesses, to be an effectual witness for Christ. But the Holy Spirit also, in His comforting ministry, reveals more of Jesus Christ. It is by the Spirit we comprehend the Lord Jesus, that we see Him, that He draws near, that we feel His presence. Now, the Lord comes near to this broken person. He is not beckoned. We don't have it like we had in the, the previous event that's detailed, where, first of all, the religious leaders go as a, in an appeal for Jesus to come by the home of the centurion, and then the other group of friends that are sent to tell him, trouble not yourself. Here's what the centurion says, just speak the word only. We don't have any of that. What draws the Lord Jesus to this particular crowd, and I should say this particular individual, is not the appeal of friends and religious leaders who are saying, Come, help here. It is our brokenness. From a distance. From a distance, doesn't matter how far away it might be, from a distance Jesus senses the broken. And He comes near the broken in heart. It was her sobs the night prior to the burial. He heard them. He saw them. And so as he goes about his business the next day, the day after, he went into a city called Nain. Many were with him. Much people are there. They have no idea, but he has, with laser focus, felt the pain of a widow who has lost her only son and is looking to the heavens, wondering where an answer may come from. Asking questions, perhaps. Why? Beloved, I say to you, never be ashamed of being broken. Never. Never be ashamed of being a sober in the prayer meeting. Never be ashamed of being someone who's easily brought to tears. Never. I'm not asking for you to put it on with fake crocodile tears. I'm meaning the real sincerity, the brokenness of heart that reflects someone who has moved easily by pain and suffering. As he heard the inaudible prayers of Hannah, so he saw the unspoken despair of this woman. That's what it tells us, isn't it? Verse 13, when he, the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion. Couldn't be a stronger word given. Compassion. The inner part of his being, he is moved. He is moved. 
He sees and senses feelings of despair. I leave it there. Continue to meditate on that. I encourage you. But also he speaks words of hope. He speaks words of hope. He said unto her, verse 13, Weep not. Weep not. I just pause over those words. Was he reprimanding her? Weep not. Why are you weeping? No. <laughs> you can't see it, neither can I. If he was reprimanding her, we might ask, well, you wept at Lazarus' tomb. No, he's not reprimanding her. And some texts more than others cry out for the need to hear the tone in which they were said. That's what I was thinking as I was studying this. I thought, if only I could hear it. If only I could hear it. What tone did he use? If I hear my Lord aright, I discern him say these words softly. And in such a way that paired with the movement of his body towards the bier, the words, weep not, do not end with a period. They end with an ellipsis. He says it in such a way, and with his movement towards the beer, not to anger her, but immediately to arouse her curiosity that something's coming. If I discern it, that's what I see. I hear his words, weep not. In other words, then, he spoke these words to give expectation and hope. Weep not. And with that sense that something else is coming. In Isaiah chapter 50, we are told of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Isaiah 50, verse 4. Speaking of Messiah, the Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. In this case, it was two words. A word in season to him or her that is weary. He knew how to speak words in season. He was given the tongue of the learned. Oh, not just educated in terms of academia, but educated by the Spirit, taught of God. Jesus Christ speaks, knowing exactly the words to say and the manner in which to say them. And I'll tell you, as a gospel minister, even still fairly early on in my ministry, I have seen many a sad case, many a condition, where I wondered, what am I going to say? And if God spares me, given... The cursed condition of this world, I know that I will be in such places again and again. I know that I had words of hope for such souls like Jesus. So, we have seen no comforter can match Jesus. Get it into your heart. There's no one that can comfort like him. He sees and senses feelings of despair. He speaks words of hope. Secondly, no conflict can match Jesus. No conflict can match Jesus. Verse 14, And he came and touched the bier. They that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, arise. And he that was dead sat up, 
and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. It's hard to visualize this again, but if you can see this huge crowd, both from the funeral procession, much of the people of the city are there with her, many of his disciples, and much people are with Jesus. There's a huge crowd, therefore, and the crowd with Jesus merges into the funeral procession, and Jesus walks up to the bier, a simple frame, not a coffin like we would have, but just a frame with probably cloth draped over. And he walks right up, speaks to the widow, weep not, and touches the stretcher upon which the corpse lay. And everyone freezes. We're told that. They that bear him stood still. The pallbearers just freeze. <laughs> this is not customary behavior. <laughs> to touch the dead is to make oneself ceremonially contaminated. You don't do that unless it's a necessity. But as it was with the leper, so it is in this case with the dead. You can't contaminate Christ. He touches contamination to make it whole. He came to give life where there is death. This is the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the pallbearers, they, they stand still. Are they shocked? Maybe they're disgusted, perhaps confused. He doesn't pay too much attention to it. The Lord Jesus simply says, Young man, I say unto thee, arise. <laughs> Try to fit yourself there. You're part of this sorrowing party and Someone comes along and speaks to the corpse. Now, the Lord's going to raise three people that we're given record of in the Gospels. This is the first one. Going to have Jairus' daughter as well, and obviously Lazarus in John 11. This is perhaps the most public one, more people here than any of the others. And it's earlier on in the ministry. So, I mean, to try and put yourself there again, to see, you know, maybe they're, again, confusion, certainly, disgust, perhaps, anger even. What's going on here? Try to put yourself there. Imagine being a pallbearer, being responsible for the body of the deceased and the sobriety with which you're going about everything. And someone comes along, touches it, and speaks in this fashion. But here we see a couple of things in what the Lord Jesus does here. First, He wages war with physical death. He wages war with physical death. I remind you again tonight that this entire scene was never the divine intention. There was no death in the beginning. God did not put death into the world. Death is a result of our father Adam's disobedience. And this is crucial to keep in mind. Sometimes Scripture tells us of fevers and sicknesses that people had so that we understand what they were going through. We get, a, again, a sense of their suffering. In this case, we're told nothing of what took the young man, but what is important to realize is not what he died of, but realize that people die because of sin. Now, there are secondary causes. Strokes, cancers, heart failure, and this is what we talk about. We talk about these things. He died of a stroke. He died of cancer. He died of heart failure. 
But these are the result of the curse placed on sin. What he has done in terms of cursing the world, these are experiences in a cursed world, but they're not the reason why people die. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Sin brings death. Perhaps even more clearly, Ezekiel 18, verse 4, 4, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. It is not the soul that eats sugar or smokes or drinks. It's the soul that sinneth. They die. Certainly these in excess may haste death, but they don't bring death. Otherwise their absence would prevent death. But that's not the case. People die because of sin. In time, medicine may deal with cancer. It may eliminate the possibility of strokes, but it won't put an end to death. Romans 5.14, death reigned from Adam, and it will continue to reign. According to what we find in 1 Corinthians 15.26, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So whatever's going on in Silicon Valley and other parts of the world where they're trying to figure out ways to end death, it won't happen. It will be the last enemy defeated by our Savior. He will deal with death. But again, I say they may put an end to cancer. That may be possible. They may eliminate the possibility of strokes by medication or some other thing they're able to do, but it will not end death. These things are secondary. You die because of sin. Your loved ones die because of sin. They all die because of sin. Sin is in the world and that brings death. If you do not get that, you'll be liable to all sorts of false thinking about what's going on in the world and trying to make head or tail of what people experience and why they experience it. Then you'll be angry. You'll be angry because that loved one didn't pay attention to your advice. If they only changed their diet or if they only done this, then they, they would live. But step back. I'm all for extending life. We have stewardship, but this isn't what I'm dealing with tonight. I'm not dealing with stewardship. I'm not dealing with the right approach to looking after what God has gifted to us. That has its place. It's entirely pro- appropriate and right. But I want you to grasp everyone will die. And fundamentally, first cause is not how they ate. Are there genetics in terms of some hereditary condition? It's sin. They may eliminate all these common reasons for death that we face regularly today, but they will yet die. And the only hope is the Lord Jesus. This passage points us to a future day. Christ is giving, just opening a little window, pulling back the veil just a little to the time when He will usher in the promise of Revelation 21 verse 4, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. This is just a little window. 
a little insight. That when Jesus speaks in other parts, such as John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And then the question comes, believest thou this? And he has pulled back the veil in such occasions as these so that the heart of the believer can grasp. Yes. Yes, Jesus, you're the answer. You're the answer. As I stare... into the face of my pain and my loss my sorrow he comes and he simply says young man I say unto thee arise this is what every believer can trust in Marvel not, I say unto you, the hour is coming. And they that are in the graves shall come forth. By the utterance of Jesus Christ, he will bring them forth. And they will come to be judged as people acquitted, but not all. Without Jesus Christ, your resurrection at the last day will only lead to what the Bible calls the second death, the lake of fire, where you will suffer forever. Oh, preacher, don't, don't deal with those things. It's, it's too serious, somber. Just tell us about the good things. The Welsh preacher... Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, (laughs) and how true it is, the Bible has no comfort whatsoever to give to people who are not Christians. None at all. End quote. No comfort whatsoever. So when I go after you in your unbelief, It's because you have no comfort. And I'm trying to bring you into comfort. I'm trying to show you where comfort is, the source of comfort. I'm trying to point you to the Lord Jesus. I'm trying to help you comprehend that you live in a world where you have to come to terms with sorrow. And as much as you try to avoid it, you cannot avoid all sorrow. You can adopt the philosophy of the Epicureans, but you will still have the conflicting experience of the reality of sorrow in your life. And the way to reconcile and understand and have hope amidst the hurt is through Christ. If you have not Christ, you have not hope. 
while you're young, perhaps, and feel that the whole world is before you. Don't, don't dampen my hopes and expectations for my life. I say to you, you have no idea what's coming. This is the funeral of a young man. I can't tell you what age he was, but he was young. He may have been 16, 17, he may have been 22, but it's not very old. People in their sorrow were carrying his body where it's going to be buried. And the only hope for people as as we face our sorrows in life is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has waged war with physical death. And everything that leads to it, all the pain, all the sorrow, all the crying, Christ is the only hope amidst all these experiences. Praise His name, He will finally and fully deal with them. He will put an end to them. They will not simply be diminished. They will be deleted. Gone. Gone. And his people will live everlastingly without all these things. Without news headlines of one tragedy after another. What a day that will be. Glorious day that will be. But he wages war also with spiritual death. Every miracle the Lord Jesus performed had in it spiritual significance. He was teaching. He was instructing. Things going on that taught either about him or about what he's doing or what he's come to do. In this case, it is a clear indication of what he has come to do. That's on display and put on record so that we understand this is what Jesus has come to do. He's come to deal with death. Now, we've seen it in the physical, but it's also true in the spiritual It's always amazing to me that there's a great increase in an expression of the Christian faith when someone dies. People who never go to church or never give much thought to the Lord all of a sudden become what appears to be devout Christians when someone dies. And they have this great hope. And of course, there's great pressure on the clergy to present the assurances at the funeral of Christ's victory over physical death and confidence in the bodily resurrection of the departed. All of this, of course, is you go through all of this. But try to present the, the truth of spiritual death <laughs> to most people, and it will be resisted. Show them from the Scriptures that man is spiritually cut off from God. Now listen, Ephesians 2 verse 1, that we are dead in trespasses and sins. That's the word of God. We are dead in trespasses and in sins. That's the spiritual condition. Later on in the same epistle, Ephesians 2.12, we are told that such that are without Christ, quote, are stated as having no hope and without God in the world. No hope. That's exactly what Lloyd-Jones was saying, wasn't it? They have no hope. There's no hope for the person who's not a Christian. Why? Because they have this spiritual condition. They are lost. It's not merely that they're heading into death, like everyone who's ever been born, but they have within them a spiritual death. They have no life. 
Paul later says again in the same epistle, Ephesians 4, verse 18, that they are alienated from the life of God. Alienated. It's not very flattering language, is it? You go up to the average person in your place of employment and say, do you know you're alienated from God? (laughs) But they are. They don't know it. They live their lives completely ignorant of it. And if they're aware of it, they don't want to acknowledge it. They are alienated from God. This is the condition in which we are born. Everyone is born spiritually as this young man is physically. You see there a corpse. That is the person born into the world. They're dead. People can try to carry their bodies around, but they're dead. They have no life. Dead in sin. Lost, alienated, and without hope. And if you're in such a condition tonight, maybe this is a helpful time for me to show you why there's such a disconnect in your experience and the vast majority who are around you tonight. Ever feel that you don't get on with Christians? Ever feel that you don't understand what it is they enjoy so much about attending the house of God? Ever wonder why people go out of their way to go to Bible studies? Or take their Wednesday nights to go to a prayer meeting? Or get up on a Saturday morning to go to pray? Wonder those things? You wonder, wonder, do you wonder, do you think about it? Why you don't have that same compulsion, that same feeling of wanting to do these things? It's not because they, they do it to feel better about themselves. They're alive. Spiritually alive. So the spiritually alive engage in spiritual things. They want to. They've been quickened, made alive is the language. They have new impulses, new affections, new desires. They, they feel like they want to be at the prayer meeting. They want to be at the house of God. They want to be at a Bible study. They want to listen to God's Word. They want to talk about the Lord Jesus with their friends who love the, the Savior as well. They want to plumb into the depths of doctrine and theology. They want to discuss things that relate to scriptures and edify the soul. They have an interest in these things because they've been quickened, they've been made alive. They have a vision for their friends. They pray by name for those that are lost in their acquaintance and family. They want to see them saved. You sit there and wonder, I've never really had a burden for a lost person, never had a burden for a Bible study, never really had some desire to go to a prayer meeting. Sometimes I feel the impulse to pray, usually when it's when things aren't going my way. But you don't have this natural desire, and it's because you're dead. You're, you're like this young man. And we can try to carry you about in the church and try to make you look like a Christian, but you're still dead. And you need to be quickened. You need to be made alive. You need a spiritual resurrection. You need Christ to come and touch you as he did here. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, Nicodemus. Anything short of that and you're lost. You must be born again. You must have the second birth. Or as it is translated more literally, born from above. Something of heaven has come into your soul. There's an affinity there. A desire, longing, interest. You've been born again. So I ask you, have you? Have you been born again? You say, I don't know. 
I'm not sure. How would I know? Well, some of the things that we've talked about, the affections and interests for things that Christians have an interest in. But let's even set that aside for a moment. How do you know you have experienced this resurrection, this spiritual resurrection? You have come to Jesus. And as you have come to Jesus, something happens. We are told in John chapter 1 verse 4 that in Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men. In Jesus was life. So there you are, dead, spiritually numb. And I say to you, sitting there, wondering about your condition, I say, forget about decisions of the past. If there is uncertainty in your life, come to Christ. Not that you be saved all over again. That is not my point. But if there is good reason to be concerned about your spiritual condition, You give yourself again to Christ. You come to Christ. You say, Lord, I don't know if there's ever been a real work done in my life. I see no evidence of it. I see no interest in the things of God. I see no aspirations to glorify Christ. I don't see it, Lord, and it disturbs me. It bothers me, and so I'm coming. And if I was not saved, do that work in me now. I'm not saying that... Many would say, keep coming to the altar. That's not my point. This is about a serious, cognitive, conscious understanding that there's something missing in your affections toward Christ. There's nothing. You can see no evidence of what is foundational in the Christian life. You have real no, you have no real interest in, in the things we're doing tonight. You're just counting the minutes till it's over. And you're either seriously backslidden Or you've never been saved. And you're to come to Christ that you might have life. In Him was life. And that's the contact you need to... He had life as soon as He touched this corpse. It came to life. And a wonderful thing happens then. You begin to understand. I say it reverently. What you used to say, what's the big deal? With Jesus or aspects of the Christian faith, what's the big deal? All of a sudden it makes sense to you. And there is a fellowship that comes again not just between you and the Lord, but with you and the others who live. Look at verse 15. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. Reconciliation. Communion. I wonder what he said. I don't know. trying to see her response to this. It's not unlike what happened the night I came to Christ. When I walked in through the front door and told my mom I was saved. And there are no words. 
There's just tears. Tears of joy. Tears of disbelief, perhaps. And I say to you tonight, maybe some of our younger participants in this church, some of you brought up in the faith. And you have a, you have a mother who is waiting for the day when you come and you tell her, the Lord has saved me. Finally, no character can match Jesus. No character can match Jesus. We're told in verse 16, There came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying, That a great prophet has risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. I say for your own study that there is a remarkable correlation in how Luke records this event and the resurrection that was performed by Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. If you take a note of verse 10 and verses 17 through 24 of 1 Kings 17, you will see a tremendous correlation in how Luke records this. But it wasn't just understood by Luke and his record of it that this is very similar to what happened back in Elijah's day, so I'm going to detail it in a similar fashion. It was seen by those who were there that day. That's why they say a great prophet has risen up again among us. Later on, we're going to find out who do men say that I am. Well, some say Elijah. And that's where their mind is going. Israel has not witnessed a resurrection since the days of Elijah and Elisha. Now they're standing here observing this and a great prophet has risen up among us. But Luke is going to show how Jesus is a greater prophet than any of the revered prophets of Israel. And he is showing here that what Zechariah understood in Luke 1, 68, when he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. He understood that the visitation of God is for the redemption of people. They are seeing this in a fashion, God had visited His people. And why had He visited them? He had visited them to redeem, to save. He came not to condemn, but to save. Oh, they have questions in their minds. They, too, who is He and what's going on? Their answers are simple. He must be a prophet. And God is visiting His people. That's the two things. Oh, that we would have even a fresh experience of the visitation of God in our day. In a very real sense, God has visited His people. Christ has come. The gospel is going to the ends of the world. And the Lord is being glorified in the gathering in of His people. But there are those seasons where God visits a locality, a community, even sometimes a nation. It would be wonderful to see such days again. We pray for it. So have you, have you understood these verses? Have you, have you grasped them? 
Have they moved your heart at all? Maybe you're such, on such a, a mountaintop, or certainly you're at least in, you're not in the valley, <laughs> that having someone who understands your sorrow and your grief isn't really at the forefront of your mind right now. But let me say this, one day it will be. And I hope when that day comes that you will find, as God's people have found time and time again, that standing somewhere in the shadows is Jesus. This is all about Him. It's about His sufficiency. There's no match to Him. You can try all the philosophies of the world You can try all the religions of the world. You can try all the medications of the world. You can try it all. And you will come back to this reality. There is none like Jesus. And if your soul is destitute and empty, and if you see yourself there, basically you're dead. You know spiritually you're dead. Oh, that you would feel... Just feel the touch of the Lord Jesus where you are seated and hear his words. Arise. Arise. Come away from your sin. Come away from those companions that seem so important to you, but the reality is they can do nothing for your soul. They want your partnership. Read the opening passages of Proverbs. The father is so concerned for his son because he knows companions will lead you astray. Evil companions will work their work because sin loves company. People feel much better about themselves when there's company as they engage in sin. But you need to have done with that. You need to sacrifice. You need to give up your idolatry of your thoughts of what your friends think. You need to sacrifice it and say, Lord Jesus, I I hear your words. Arise, come away. Come away from the sin. Come away from the companions. Come away from whatever it is. Rise up. Enter into the newness of life found in Christ alone. May the Lord help you. Let's bow together in prayer. I may not be available immediately after this meeting. But accept that providence and realize that you do not need me. You need Christ. And you just simply say to the Lord, your word says, in Christ is life. I am coming to the one who is life. The one who is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by him. Young person, God forbid that it would be you someday. 
and her mother sobbing. By your graveside. Yes, sobbing at the loss of potential in your life. And sobbing over what could have been. And sobbing because she's confused about what God has done. But sobbing most of all. Because she fears that you're lost. Come to Christ. Lord, come by tonight. And to those that may be lying on a stretcher, carried into church tonight by their parents, by friends, Really, they're dead. In Christ's name we pray, save them. Bless thy word to every heart. To those that may be going through the shadows and the difficulties of life, use this season to help them be strengthened in their comprehension and experience of the comforts of the gospel. So bless then this people. Be with us this week. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore.